We're moving along in James chapter 1. This week we're going to cover verses 12 through 16, and I've called this the crown of life, the reward for overcoming temptation. So let's pray. Father, give us wisdom as we go through this. Lord, you've, as we learned last week, you ask us to ask for wisdom. You command us to ask for wisdom. And we all need it. Help us to humble ourselves and to realize that without your wisdom, we're just foolish and we're making foolish decisions. So help us to ask you for wisdom and to receive your wisdom, which comes through your word, and it makes us wise to live a godly life and also wise to overcome temptation and trials. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this week we're looking at verses 11 through 16, and we're going to learn about the crown of life, which is given to those who overcome temptation. Now, as I'm going to do each week, I'm going to go over a memory verse for the book of James, which is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. So, if we can all read this together. So, you ready? James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So why do we need the wisdom of God? <laughs> One of the things we talked about last week was, so we don't waste our opportunity for the spiritual growth that God intends from those trials. Okay, Otherwise, you've got to do it again. Yeah, It's like going for your driver's license and you fail. You've got to do it again, right? So, if God gives you a trial, he wants you to pass that. And if you don't, then you have to do it again. And what it does, it reveals to you what's going on on the inside. That's what a trial does. So, let's read today's verses, which are 12 through 16. So James 1, 12 to 16, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So, the first words in verse 12 are, Blessed is the man. So verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, blessed is the man. You're probably aware of the Beatitudes. And blessed there means happy. It's the same here. So this is like another beatitude. So I thought we'd just read some of the beatitudes from Matthew. And so we get the idea of what a beatitude is. So Matthew 5, 3 to 12, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, remember that means happy, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this kind of links up with our verses in James. We're blessed if we overcome temptation here. 
In Matthew, we're blessed if we overcome persecution. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, basically here in James 1 verse 12, we learned that another way we can be blessed or happy is by enduring temptation. And this goes against all worldly and humanistic wisdom, right? It's not common sense for the non-Christian to think this way. What does the world say? What's the American dream? The pursuit of happiness, yeah. It's the pursuit of happiness. And what is this saying? A way to deny ourselves happiness, yeah? But there's two types of happiness, isn't there? There's two types of pleasure. There's worldly pleasure and there's, if I can call it this, godly pleasure, yeah? So, there is pleasure in sin. Everybody knows that. The world knows that. You know, the people who indulge in pornography and drugs and alcohol, lying, gossiping, sex, selfishness and violence, they do it because they get pleasure from it. The world wouldn't love sin if it didn't feel good. And Hebrews 11.25 confirms this. Talking about Moses, it says, He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting or temporary pleasures of sin. So, yes, there is temporary pleasure in sin. However, remember that after the moment of pleasure or acceptance or gain, there comes guilt, sorrow, and the inevitable practical consequences of sin. And that includes forgiven sin. Hold on, you say, won't God forgive me? Yes, he will. In fact, God not only forgives your sin, but he even forgets your sin. Hebrews 8 verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. So, remember, it's not God who punishes us for our sins, because Jesus already took the punishment for our sins when he died on the cross in our place. Instead, it's the natural consequences of our sin that punishes us in the here and now, in this life. So Numbers 32.23 But if you fail to keep your word, this is talking to the children of Israel, then you will have sinned against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. So it's your sin that will find you out, not God. And someone said to me when I was talking about my problem with eating too much chocolate, a minute on the lips, a lifetime on the hips, and the same is true with sin, yeah? (laughs) The consequences will always last a lifetime. The sin is forgiven and forgotten by God. It's just like the chocolate bar, right? Forgotten, but the weight is still there. However, the physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences of our sin will affect us the rest of our lives. And I like to think of it like you've got a smooth lake, everything's nice and beautiful, and then you throw a rock into it, and the whole lake becomes stirred up. The ripple goes on and on until it reaches the end or to the shore of the lake. So, for example, if I smoke marijuana and damage my brain and then suffer from schizophrenia, becoming saved isn't going to reverse the damage. That's an example of the consequences of forgiven sin. Yeah, And the same goes for my reputation. It only takes one fly to putrefy the ointment or the perfume in Proverbs. And so one foolish sin can have lifelong consequences. And personally, you know, 
I look back and I think, why have I done some of the things that I've done? <laughs> yeah. I've hurt God, I've hurt others, and I've hurt myself. And really, if we look at our lives, we cannot be happy or blessed as we suffer the consequences of our own sin. Makes sense, right? And God never promises to protect us from the consequences of our own sin. Now, some people seem to get away with sin, but this is a delusion. God says, be sure that your sin will find you out, yeah? If you look beneath the surface of anyone who is indulging in sin, they are always miserable and insecure. All right, They have nothing going for them on the inside. They are actually trapped and held captive by their sin. And for them, their sin is a moment of gain for a lifetime of pain. So don't be deceived by that. Now, a question that people ask is, what right does God have to cause me to suffer and endure trials? Well, we've learned in previous weeks that God uses trials to grow us, yeah? That's his way of doing things. And he does that to make us more like him. But you might ask, what right does God have to cause me to suffer and endure trials? I mean, he's God. Can't he figure out another way to make me grow? Rather than through suffering, there's got to be a better way which is more comfortable, yeah? Actually, God has earned the right to use his trials as a method of growth. And the ultimate example is Jesus himself. And a couple of verses from Hebrews. So Hebrews 2.18 For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So he himself has suffered being tempted, yeah? What's our verse today in James? Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For and Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeah? So God knows what it feels like because he's been here, he's done that, yeah? Jesus leads always by example, and Jesus overcame every temptation common to man, and even better, he's given us the same power that he used to overcome temptation, to overcome sin. It's the power of God in us and the divine nature. And that's Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So how much has he given us? Everything. Okay. Now, do we need to ask for this? Actually, we don't because it's already given. Yeah? <laughs> it's already given. We need to ask for wisdom. But the power is there. Yeah? He's already given us everything we need, all the resources we need for living a godly life. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, right? The verses continue. We have received all of this by coming to know him. So when did we receive it? When we got saved, yeah? When we came to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature 
and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires or lust. So, we are able to escape this world's corruption caused by our human desires. Now, it's really important. We're going to talk about human desires a lot today. And that's the root of our problem. You can't blame anyone else but yourself. Now, what's the result of Jesus' obedience? Well, he was full of what? Joy. If you go through the New Testament, people flocked to Jesus. People loved to be around Jesus. And it wasn't just because he was perfect and he never hurt anyone, but he was always perfectly walking in the Spirit. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. All right? Who doesn't want to hang around someone who's exhibiting perfect love and joy? Yeah? The Holy Spirit was flowing through him. The fruit of the Spirit was coming out of him. So, Jesus was happy. Jesus was blessed. Jesus was joyful. So, by the life of Jesus, by his example, we can know that Happiness is a result of enduring temptation, of saying no to sin and yes to God. All right. That's why James 1.12 says, Blessed or happy is the man who endures temptation. Again, it goes against everything we think from the worldly perspective. The world says, go to that party, have fun, watch that movie. But God says that's going to lead to pain and misery. A moment of gain for a lifetime of pain, yeah? Whereas we, on the other hand, a moment of pain, it's difficult to say no, but then is a lifetime of gain, a lifetime of blessing, yeah? So, enduring temptation, in verse 12, it says, who endures temptation. So what does it mean to endure? So I looked up the lexicon, the Greek meaning for this word, and it said, to remain, hold out, endure. Wait for, stand your ground, to resist, to be permanent, not to be moved. Continue, to wait expectantly, to wait, to tarry, to wait patiently, to wait upon, to hope, to be patient under, submit, to cause to hope. And David Guzik has a comment about this enduring temptation. It says, it does not say, blessed is a man who is never tempted, nor does it say, Blessed is a man who finds all temptation easy to conquer. (laughs) Instead, the promise of blessedness is given to the one who endures temptation. That is, they continue to fight, yeah? There is a special gift of blessedness from God to the one who can say no to temptation, thereby saying yes to God. Now think of the life of Joseph. We went through his life last week. Potiphar's wife kept on coming up to him and you know, asking him for sex day after day after day. So God has never promised us an easy life. We need to accept this and move on in our life or become bitter towards God when things don't go our way. So that's not fair. Actually, it's God's will and it's good for us. So as we mature and become stronger in our faith, guess what? (laughs) The trials only get harder. (laughs) So guess what? The promise of God is that not only will you have tribulations, but you will have more tribulations as you become stronger in your faith. Why? Because we need to keep on growing. There's no pain, no gain. 
Now, think about the practical aspects of life like education, sports, promotions and employment, relationships, marriage and any other thing that is worth working for. So we know, and we all do, work at these things so we can get a reward or recognition or we can improve in what we're doing. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. So if I've got a job and I get a promotion, does my work get easier or harder? It gets harder. Same in the spiritual realm. All right? Now, remember that the opposite of working towards something is neglecting it. God knows that an easy life leads to complacency and laziness. That's what you've got to keep your kids working, right? We are always either going backwards or forwards. We're never standing still. We're improving or forgetting, yeah? Acts 14, 21 to 22 says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So what does every Christian need? We need to be strengthened. So we come together in church, We come together as a group of believers to strengthen each other's souls through fellowship, exhorting each other to continue in the faith and saying we must through many trials or tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Together, we can encourage each other, but without a fellowship, what happens? Our souls become weak and we don't continue in the faith. One of the main purposes of today's message is to strengthen your souls so that you can endure the promised trials. The promised trials, yeah? We will go through persecution, hardships, and temptation to sin if we are walking with God. Now, practical example, consider a boxer preparing for a prize fight. His coach gives him an unrelenting exercise and weights program which pushes him to his limits. You know, his muscles are always sore. His muscles are burning. All the exercise he's getting, you know, he's just about fainting when he's finished. It's push, push, push. And there's no poisonous foods like McDonald's or lollies or chocolate or biscuits or Coke. And worse still, probably the hardest part, is the never-ending stream of rival boxers. You know, all these competitors, all these opponents that the coach brings in, yeah? The coach brings in these other boxers. Why? Because they need practice fighting. And as he gets good enough to beat one guy, he brings in a better guy. And then he's got to get good enough to beat that guy. Then he brings in a better fighter still, yeah? And he gets harder and harder and harder. But he's getting better and better and better. So we all know why the coach is pushing the boxer so hard. He needs to be continuously improving in his fitness and skills. So he'll be ready for the prize fight. Otherwise, he'll be totally ashamed when he gets knocked out in the first round. And not only ashamed, it badly hurt, yeah? You need to be prepared if you're going to be in the fight, right? Let you in a secret or in the fight, yeah? If you're a Christian, you're in the fight. You're either training and winning or you're you're being bashed up by Satan. What does Satan do? He's walking around like a lion, looking for those he might devour. So, for us, God is our coach. And he uses the same tactics. And like the boxer, if we don't trust our coach and his methods, then we will so easily lose heart and give up. And again, 
Like the boxer, we need to keep our eyes on the prize. So what is our prize? Well, today we're learning about the crown of life. It's an eternal reward in the future. It's a literal crown that we will receive at the Bema Seat Judgment when we stand before Christ after we've been raptured and we're in heaven. Secondly, we have the happiness or blessedness here and now on earth as we avoid the consequences of sin and we abide in our relationship with God and the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, it says, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So, run to win. Yeah? Run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. And this is Paul speaking here. This is his testimony. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. That's boxing the air. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So we are always in training. Training to be what? Righteous, holy, strong in our faith, perfect in character. And all in all, to become perfect like Jesus himself. With the added bonus of experiencing God's blessedness and happiness in this life and the crown of life in the next. Now, in verse 12, it goes on. It says, for when he has been approved. So, this is the purpose of God in allowing temptation. We've covered this before. It's like refining a metal. Yeah, You want to know how pure it is? So, you put it into the fire. The trial is like a fire. It's showing us what's inside of us. So the Greek word translated approve means tested, or assayed, examined, reliable, dependable, respected, honored, considered good, genuine, verified, proven worth, and purified. So God's purpose is that through the testing we will be revealed as genuine and strong in our faith, just like the purity of gold is tested in the fire. So what is the most important part of our discipleship program? Well, I would have to say it's being in the Word of God. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, studying, reading, and memorizing the Word of God. You get that from Romans 10, 17. And there's an awesome scripture, which I always come back to, which shows us just how important it is to be growing in the understanding of the Word of God. It's 1 John 2, 14. And a bit of background on this. John has three groups of people in mind. The little children which is the new believers, the young men, which are those who have grown up, know the word of God and have overcome sin, and then there's the fathers, which have not only overcome sin, but they have a deep relationship with the Lord as well. They're abiding in, in the Lord. So here is one of the commendations written to the young men, Okay, like the, the growing up from being a child, now they're a young man. This is what it means to be young men in the Christian faith, or young woman. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So, how do we overcome the wicked one? By having the word of God abiding in us. That makes us strong. Remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So, as we read the word, it strengthens our faith, and then we go through the trial, we have the faith to 
have victory over the trial, whatever it might be, to say no to the temptation, to go through the hard time, or to withstand the persecution. But if we're not in the Word, our faith is weak, we go through the trial and we're assayed, we're tested, and guess what? We've found out that our faith isn't as strong as we thought, haven't been in the Word much, and bang, we fail that trial. So God reveals to us what's inside. He already knows, but we don't. So these young men have grown up from being children. They are now strong. So just like the secret to a healthy and strong body is a good diet, physically, so it is with our spirits. Our spirits need a steady and strong diet of the Word of God if we are to have it abide in us. And only then will we be strong and overcome the wicked one. So just to repeat this, it's really important. If we neglect the Word of God, we will not be able to resist temptation. Someone said, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. Talking about the Bible. So eat it. That's what Jesus says. Eat it. And let it become a part of you, transforming you into the image of God. I like that idea of eating the Word, because when you eat it, you've got to chew it. You don't just swallow food, you chew it up. and You have to think about it, and then it becomes a part of you. Now, in verse 12, it continues, The crown of life which the Lord has promised, it's a guarantee. It's conditional, but it's a guarantee. It's only if we learn to overcome sin will we receive this crown of life. This is our eternal reward for patiently enduring or saying no to the temptations to sin that we face. Now, the crown of life is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, and it's mentioned as the martyr's crown. Now we call it the martyr's crown. So again, this is a reward for patiently enduring trials, but in the book of Revelation, it's used in the context of enduring persecution, not enduring temptation. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. As good, isn't it? Do not fear, yeah? Which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Why? That you may be what? Tested, yeah, assayed. And you will have tribulation, ten days. Be faithful unto what? Death. And I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Again, don't listen to anyone who says that God promises us an easy life. Take him to this verse. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So it's all about having our eyes on the reward on heaven and not on the things of this world, the comfort and the ease that people are always chasing. So one person I definitely know will be wearing the crown of life is Jesus himself. Why? Because of his testimony in Hebrews 12, 3-4. It says, Think of all the hostility he, Jesus, endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. So, enduring temptation, it's a struggle against sin. Jesus struggled against sin. Of course, he never sinned. It doesn't mean it was easy for him. Imagine being in the wilderness 40 days, not eating. Basically, by that time, your organs are starting to you know, be dissolved as you've used all your fat and muscle and you're extremely hungry. And then Satan says, oh, just make the stone bread. Well, of course he could. He's God. But 
it wasn't God's plan. And so he trusted God. And for a little bit longer, he just waited for God to provide his needs. And the angels came and provided him food. Jesus did endure temptation. He was tempted, not just by any demon, not just by any thing, but Satan himself, yeah? The most pointed and strong temptations. Now, there's other crowns. I'll just quickly go through the other crowns that we can earn or be rewarded with. So there's a crown of righteousness. This is for those who have loved or look forward to Jesus appearing. And for the church, this is the rapture. So we're looking forward to the rapture. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. This is Paul speaking at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So. That day is the beam of seat judgment, that's the reward judgment, where we stand before Christ and that fire burns away everything that's not done by faith. The wood, hay and stubble, it's all burned away. One of the rewards that we get for looking to Jesus, having an expectation of his soon return, who have been loving his appearing, is that we will get this crown of righteousness. Now, why is it called the crown of righteousness? Well, what 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, For everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So everyone has this hope in the context of the rapture, Jesus coming back, purifies himself. It means we live in expectation of Christ's soon return, And therefore, we want to please him. We don't want to be found doing something that we are ashamed of when he comes for us. And therefore, we live righteously. And the example I used a few weeks ago was the teenager. And the parents say, we're going on a holiday, but we're not telling you when we come back. And the teenager's not going to let the house get dirty. He's going to clean it every day, right? But if the parent said, I'll be back in three weeks, well, the teenager will let the house get real dirty for two weeks, and then he'll clean up the last week. But if we're expecting the return at any time, we won't let the house get dirty. There's another crown. It's called the crown of glory. It's for the faithful shepherds or leaders of God's flock. 1 Peter 5, 1-4. And now, a word to you who are elders in the churches. So an elder is someone who has a teaching position in the church. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory. Christ's glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, you could say pastor, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. So how long does this crown last for? Never-ending glory and honor. So that'll be the same for the other crowns. It's never-ending glory and honor. So again, that verse in Corinthians, Paul talking about, you know, fighting, running the race. We're doing it for an imperishable crown is going to have eternal benefit for us, eternal honor and glory. Now, Verse 12, it says, to those who love him. And I quote from David Guzik here. 
This describes the motive for resisting temptation because of our love for God. The passions of sinful temptation can only really be overcome by a greater passion, and that is a passion for the honour and glory and relationship with God. I say the same thing, but I say we need a greater love. We can love sin, but if we have a greater love for God, then that love for sin becomes less, and we're less drawn to it. Now, any other reason for change will only result in a temporary change because it doesn't come from the heart. It hasn't changed our desires. So there's actually quite a few other reasons why we would actually change. Not based on love, not based on heart change. And David Guzek has a good quote. He says, Some resist temptation because of the fear of man. The thief suddenly becomes honest when he sees a policeman. (laughs) Okay, The fear of man, he doesn't want to get caught. The man or woman controls their lusts because they couldn't bear to be found out and thus embarrassed. Again, it's a fear of man. Others resist the temptation to one sin because of the power of another sin. The greedy miser gives up partying because he doesn't want to spend the money. So if his sin of greed is stronger than his desire to go partying, and so if he stops partying, But the best motive for resisting temptation is to love him. To love him with greater power and greater passion than your love for the sin. And I know people who have stopped taking drugs. Why? So they can get a job. Because when they get that job, they're going to be tested for drugs. And so they think, you know what? For my own personal benefit, I'd love to have the money from a job. So I'm going to stop taking drugs. I mean, it's a good choice. But it's a selfish motive, right? They're not doing it because they love God. They're doing it because they love themselves. And Spurgeon has a quote regarding this. He says, So that those who endure temptation rightly endure it because they love God. They say to themselves, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? They cannot fall into sin because it would grieve him who loves them so well and whom they love with all their hearts. Again, it comes back to our love for God being greater than our love for sin. How do we love God? By getting to know him as we read his word. It's the only way. So, it's never for nothing when we choose to love God more than the world. There's a special reward, an eternal reward, called the crown of life, waiting for us who have learned to put into practice James 4 verse 7, which says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the order of things, yeah? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So why does God put such a focus on us overcoming sin and temptation? Well, it's because the opposite to submitting to God and overcoming temptation is submitting to Satan and making yourself an enemy of God. So put simply, sin destroys our relationship with God. It breaks his heart and hardens ours. That's what Hebrew says, sin hardens our hearts. God is jealous for us, but in a good way. Like a father is jealous for his children to remain in fellowship with himself. I don't want someone else to be the father of my children. I want to be their father. I love them. And same with my wife. I don't want her to be married to anyone else. She's my wife. And that's not being possessive. That's just because I love her and 
we're together. So that's a good thing. If I didn't have that godly jealousy for my family, I wouldn't care about them. So like any good earthly father, God does everything to protect and nurture our relationship with him. Why? Because he loves us and wants what is best for us. So God isn't jealous of us. (laughs) And you know, there's nothing to be jealous of, really. He's God and we're not. He's perfect and we're sinful. But he's jealous for us. He wants our affections because it's best for us if we're in relationship with him. This is expressed very clearly in James chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. It says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That's what we're talking about here. Jealous in a good way. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it's all about our relationship with God. It's all about God wanting us to be in relationship with him. So submitting to God, if we're sinning, means repent and get straight back into that relationship. God is jealous for your affection. Now we move on to verses 13 to 16, and it's the sinfulness of our human nature. (laughs) It's not a nice topic to talk about, but it's there, and we need to know it. We need to accept this. We need to know what a heart is really like. Very wicked. So it says in James 1, 13 to 16, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So it's true that God does allow us to be tempted, but he is not the one doing the tempting. It's a very important distinction to make there. So, where are the sources of temptation? Well, we're tempted in three ways. Okay, So it's by the world, it's the devil, also called Satan, the dragon or the serpent of old, and our flesh, which is also referred to as our sinful nature or the old man or the human nature. So the world, the devil, and the flesh. So, First, let's look at how the world tempts us. So 1 John 2, 15-16, it says, Do not love, don't have affection for, this world, nor the things it offers you. What is the world doing? It's offering you things. It's got its hand out and saying, Hey, this is nice. You'll enjoy this. This will make you happy. This will make your life easy. Do this. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So these temptations are not from God. God is not tempting us. He allows a temptation, but he's not the one tempting us. So just to summarize the three things that the world uses to tempt us, it's 
physical pleasure, that would include sex, drugs, alcohol, all those things. And then there's the eye candy, okay? What's pleasing to the eye, pornography, gaming, movies, TV, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the ambition and pride in our achievements, like money, promotions, fame, popularity, and stuff like that. And I want to remind you again that John makes it very clear that these are not from the Father, but are from this world. Well, if God's in control, how can we say that it's not from God? Well, world here is the Greek cosmos, and it refers to the world system more than the physical earth. And who rules it? It's Satan. I won't read all the verses out, but they're there in your notes. It says, this world system in which we live is ruled by Satan. And you can look up Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, 6, 12, John 12, 31. And 2 Corinthians 4 4. Basically, it calls Satan the ruler of this world. Therefore, Satan has corrupted every aspect of this world. And so these three forms of worldly temptation are not from the Father. Now, the second way that we can be tempted is through the devil. An example, John 13, verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, or betray Jesus. So what's Satan doing? He's putting thoughts into Judas's heart. Yeah? So God allowed this to happen. Another example is in 1 Kings 22, 19-23, where God allowed a lying spirit to deceive a wicked king. That was King Ahab. And there was a, a, a fantastic little opening into the heavens there, where the demons and the angels are there, and it's God's desire to judge this wicked king in battle so he dies and who's going to deceive him a lying spirit put his hand up i will okay go and you will prosper <laughs> well the frost prophet said to the king yep you'll 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 win this battle and of course he didn't so satan and the worldly cravings or desires can't force anybody to do anything their promptings their hooks they can't do anything. It's only if we chase them and only if we go after them that they have any power. I like what Jesus said. He said, he has nothing in me. So Jesus wanted nothing of what Satan offered. So we can't blame God for what is happening to us. God allows us to go through trials, the hard times, the persecution, the temptations, but it isn't actually God doing it. So this is what that passage means when it says, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He's not trying to destroy us. That's what Satan does. So if the root of our sin is not the world or the devil, then what causes us to sin? Well, we come to the third way we can be tempted, and that is by our sinful nature. And James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. That's from his sinful nature and enticed. David Guzik comments on this verse, God doesn't tempt us. Instead, temptation comes when we are drawn away by our own fleshly desires and enticed, with the world and the devil providing the enticement. There's a commentator called Paul, and he explains what it means to be drawn away. He says, It is either a metaphor taken from a fish enticed to a bait and drawn after it, or rather from a harlot 
drawing a young man out of the right way and alluring him with the bait of pleasure to commit folly with her. So think about that. How do you catch fish? You put the bait out there, something the fish likes. Satan's fishing for you. He's putting a bait out there. Whatever the bait might be for you, it can be different for all of us. Are we going to be drawn after that? Are we going to be drawn away from God? And David Guzik puts it this way, Satan certainly tempts us, but the only reason temptation has a hook in us is because of our own fallen nature, which corrupts our God-given desires. We often give Satan too much credit for his tempting powers and fail to recognize that we are drawn away by our own desires. Some people practically beg Satan to tempt them. (laughs) End of quote. So, we are drawn away by our own desires. That's what the verse says. So, our temptation to sin always originates from where? By sinful nature. And never from God. So, the less we love God, the stronger our desires for worldly things, and the more likely we will be to listen to Satan and the world whispering in our ear, so to speak. And Spurgeon summarizes as well this difference between tempting and trying. From God's perspective, it's a trial. It's designed to assay us, to make us strong. And from Satan's perspective, it's a temptation designed to destroy us. So Satan tempts, God tries. But the same trial may be both a temptation and a trial. And it may be a trial from God's side and a temptation from Satan's side. Just as Job suffered from Satan, and it was a temptation, but he also suffered from God through Satan, and so it was a trial to him. Can you see the two sides to it? The word trial in the Bible, like in James and that, some versions translate it temptation and some versions translate it trial. Why? Because it's the same thing. It's the opposite side of the same coin. So we always have free will. Always remember that. We always have free will. God will never force us to sin. God has never been and will never be responsible for man's sin. It was Adam's free choice to reject God. And in the same way, when we sin, we too are simply exercising our free will to obey God, submit to Him, or submitting to Him, or we use our free will to disobey God and submitting to Satan instead, the one who works in the sons of this world. So the best evidence for our sinful nature being the root of all our decisions to act against God. Now remember, Joseph, I'm sinning against God. By committing adultery with Potiphar's wife, he's sinning against God. So all sin is against God. One of the best evidences that our sinful nature is the root of all our decisions to sin against God is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth for the thousand years. There's going to be a perfect environment, perfect ecology, perfect government, perfect justice, and no sickness. Jesus himself will rule and reign on the earth. But what happens at the end of the thousand years when Satan is released from his prison in the middle of the earth? Well, he goes out to deceive the nations. They receive a choice. You can follow God or you can follow Satan. For a thousand years, there's been no choice. You can live a righteous life or you can live a righteous life because if you don't, you'll get a big stick. God's going to rule with a rod of iron, yeah? It's the opposite of today's world. In today's world, you are persecuted if you're a Christian. 
in the millennial world, <laughs> if you're not a believer, it's a very difficult life for you because your desires don't match up with what's around you. So, everyone goes into the millennium saved, but they have kids, and those kids have to make up their own mind. And there's no Satan, and there's no evil world system. The only thing that stops them from accepting Christ as their saviour is their sinful nature. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Our sinful nature is born hating God. Therefore, unless a person humbles themselves by repenting of their sin and trusting God's provision for a saviour, for the forgiveness of their sins, then they will remain condemned and separated from God. Now moving on to verse 15 and 16. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. So this is the progression of sin. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So sin springs forth from our corrupt human nature. That's where it all starts, yeah? Springing forth from sin is death. So we have the desire to sin leading to sin and then leading to death. So this progression to death is inevitable. And it's something that Satan tries to hide from us. But we should never be deceived about it. And a guy called Clark says it this way, James presents men's lust as a harlot which entices their understanding and will into its impure embraces, and from that conjunction conceives sin. Sin being brought forth immediately acts and is nourished by frequent repetition, until at length it gains such strength that in turn it begets death. This is the true genealogy of sin and death. This is the progression. I read a book. I think it was Frank Peretti. And in it, they had this little serpent. It represented evil. And at the start, they could control this little snake thing, which represented evil. It's a fictional story, but it's an allegory of sin. It's a very good one. And as time went on, this snake serpent thing got bigger and bigger. And instead of them being able to control it, it started to control them. And it got so big that it started to eat them and kill them. So we start out with a little sin and we think we're controlling it, but guess what? It's going to grow and then it's going to kill us. It's like a snake going around. It just gets tighter and tighter and tighter until it squeezes you and you cannot breathe and you die. So think about sin as a slow poisoning of our soul. At first we sin because we want to. And then we sin because sin controls us. Very soon we become slaves to sin. And then sin owns us and will eventually destroy or kill us. And that's what it says there. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So if you're saved, you're not going to lose your salvation. But your marriage your relationship with God, they can all suffer badly. Now, consider someone who's an alcoholic. That person never thought 
to themselves when they had their first drink. This is fantastic. I'm going to end up destroying my life, losing my job, lose my family and make them miserable. And I'm going to kill that young family in a drink driving accident. Was he thinking that when he had his first drink? No. What did he think? I've got this, no problems. One drink won't hurt. It's just a little fun. So, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We must always remember that Satan's greatest strategy in temptation is to convince us that the pursuit of our corrupt desires will somehow produce life and goodness for us. It will somehow be beneficial for us. If we remember that Satan only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, John 10.10, then we can more effectively resist the temptation, the deceptions of temptation. So, conclusion, sin and sinful desires come from within, not from God, so don't blame him. We overcome our sinful desires by abiding in God's word and growing in our love for God. So let's read today's verses again. It's James 1, 12 to 16. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Father, thank you for this very painful but true message, Lord. The problem is us. We can't blame the circumstances. We can't blame other people. We can't blame the world. We can't blame Satan. The reason we sin is because we choose to sin. Help us to take responsibility, Lord, and to realize that when we are not walking with you, it's because we choose not to. And we need to humble ourselves. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. So I pray that for us we would continue to repent, continue to humble ourselves and allow you to lift us up, to give us victory over the sin, to allow us to endure the persecution and the difficult times we go through. So we just commit us all to you now. Strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us as we submit to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.